We are continuing in our study in the book of Jonah today. And as you turn there, why don't you go and stand for the reading of the word? Fairly brief this morning. And no doubt the most familiar text to most people when it comes to this book. Jonah chapter 1. We'll be spending most of our time in verse 17 this morning, but to better appreciate the overall context of that scene, we'll begin our time this morning in Jonah chapter 1, reading verses 15 through 17. There we read, So they picked up Jonah, threw him into the sea, and the sea stopped its raging. Then the men feared the Lord greatly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow Jonah. And Jonah was in the stomach of the fish three days and three nights. This is the word of God. Please be seated. As we get to these verses this week, we again are getting to the verses that are most familiar to most people, even vaguely familiar with the story of Jonah. Um, Prior to beginning the study, I would guess that most of you in here could at least mention this part of the story, the part where Jonah is swallowed up by a great fish, because it is arguably the most memorable part of this book. It's the part that many of us heard as children in children's church, and it's the part that's oftentimes drawn and illustrated in children's Bibles. As we get into it, however, as we will see, as memorable as the scene is, it really isn't the main point of the overall book. For as bizarre as the events are that will unfold, as strange as it is to read of a great fish swallowing up a prophet, and that is bizarre, that is strange, don't, don't overlook that. The fact is that in this book of Jonah, and in these particular events, we have a story that is actually somewhat strange in its familiarity. That is to say, we have a story that's not all that unique when it comes to Scripture. And what scripture teaches us. For while the details might change from book to book, ultimately, the events that we will look into this morning in Jonah are events that many other prophets and many other authors write of. They're events that ultimately speak of the consequences of sin. The idea of of discipline from the hand of God. There are events that speak of, of the miraculous ways in which God preserves his people and the ends to that preservation. And ultimately, even in the most bizarre details, this is yet another story in which something greater is being foreshadowed, something greater is being pointed to by the author and ultimately by God. The goal in examining this type of text then isn't to walk away with with a renewed sense of awe for some of the fun stories of Scripture, although that's part of it. Rather, the goal of exploring this type of story is to walk away with a renewed sense of awe of the God that's in control of all of it. The God who is ruler over everyone, Jonah included, sea creatures included, ourselves included. He is the focus of our text. And as we explore his nature and specifically his sovereignty, the hope is we might walk away with a better appreciation of who it is exactly we serve and why it is we ought to serve him with such joy and direct obedience. Before we pick up the narrative then and begin with that familiar tale of discipline and consequences of sin, let me begin our time in a time of prayer, and we will then dive into Jonah 1, 15 through 17. Father in heaven, as always, 
It is a great pleasure and a great honor to gather together as the body of Christ. God, it is such a joy to sing songs of praise to you, to sing songs of your faithfulness and of your power. And as we get into Jonah, we get into a text that continues to praise you for your power, for your faithfulness to your people. God, as we come to these particular verses, we come to verses that are no doubt very familiar to a great number of us. For we come to the most seemingly familiar part of the story of Jonah. And yet, as we will hopefully see this morning, God, ultimately, this story is not simply about a prophet being swallowed up by a great fish. The story is one that speaks of your glory, that again speaks of your unparalleled, unmatched power. God, might you humble our hearts this morning. As believers in Christ, might we walk away from here encouraged, all the more motivated to serve you, remembering your sovereign hand is always at work. For anyone who is here who does not know you, Lord, might this text terrify them. Might use it to shake them from their slumber and cause them to come to a saving faith in you, their ultimate ruler and king. God, ultimately, might this time be a time that is glorifying to you, a time that is spent in praise of you and in praise of your son, Jesus Christ, of whom this text ultimately speaks. Remove all distractions from us. Bless this time, we pray in Jesus Christ's name. We do pray these things. Amen. As we pick up the text in Jonah chapter 1, beginning in verse 15, we of course are in the middle of a story that, that began all the way in verse 1 of chapter 1. If you've been with us throughout the time, you are familiar with, with the reason for the discipline that Jonah faces as our story picks up again. You will no doubt recall the, the heinous sin of this prophet who in the very beginning of Jonah chapter 1, verse 1, God tells Jonah the prophet to arise and go to Nineveh, the great city, and cry against it for their wickedness has come up before me. Jonah, this prophet, is given a word directly from God and commanded to go to Nineveh. But Nineveh, as we've seen, is a place that Jonah despises. And to a certain extent, he despises it for good reason. Because Nineveh is the home to, to people who are wicked. Nineveh is home to the enemies of the people of God, home to a group of people who even historically speaking are viewed as vicious terrible people. So Jonah doesn't want to go to them. And instead, the prophet openly rejects God's command. And he flees the complete opposite direction. He, knowing the fact that God is sovereign, knowing that God is ultimately ruling over sea and earth, still is determined, still is so blinded by his hatred for those in Nineveh, that he attempts to flee to Tarshish. He disobeys God. In the midst of his disobedience, in the midst of his attempted fleeing, though, as we've seen for the last couple of weeks, God causes a great storm to kick up upon the seas. So great and so severe is this storm that it threatens to break apart the very ship in which Jonah sails. So strong are the winds that those seasoned sailors are unable to, to row against it, and they lose all hope. Having understood by Jonah that that this prophet on board is actually the cause for this, the storm. The sailors feel they have no choice but to cast this individual overboard, to throw him into the tumultuous seas in hopes that that would appease the wrath of this Hebrew God. Upon casting him overboard, the assumption, of course, would have been to those sailors and, and to anyone observing these events, the assumption would be that, that Jonah's dead at this point in time. I mean, practically speaking, even if you haven't spent a lot of time out at sea, I've spent none, 
so I, I, I can say that if you like. But practically speaking, you assume that if someone's thrown overboard in the midst of a tumultuous storm that threatens to break apart a ship, that person's probably going to die, right? That, that's the natural assumption. But even beyond that, that assumption, practically speaking, there would have been the cultural beliefs standing behind those reading this text. And in that culture, all of this imagery of a tumultuous sea, the imagery of a great sea creature coming up, the imagery of, of three days passing, all of those things spoke to their understanding of death, spoke to their understanding of destruction. For in that ancient Near Eastern culture, the sea was a, a terrifying place to many of them. And it represented chaos. It represented destruction, so to be thrown into destruction would have meant your own doom. You can learn some of that language or see some of that, that worldview picked up in a number of other Old Testament texts. It's not just assumed here in Jonah. You can read about it in Isaiah chapter 57, verses 20 and 21, where the prophet compares the tumultuous sea to the ways of the wicked. In both cases, the prophet says there is no peace, there's only chaos, the end is only destruction. In a somewhat similar manner, turning back to Psalm chapter 74, when, when putting the, the power of God on display, when worshiping God, the psalmist speaks of the sea to, to just show how strong God must be. Speaking to that end in Psalm 74, verses 13 and forward, the psalmist says, You, God, divided the sea by your strength. You broke the heads of the sea monsters and the waters. You crushed the heads of the Leviathan. You gave him his food for the creatures of the wilderness. You broke open springs and torrents, you dried up ever-flowing streams, so on and so forth. The language clearly being, the sea is a dangerous place. The sea is out of control, it is uncontrollable, and only God, only the Lord, only Yahweh could possibly calm it, could possibly control it. Even beyond that sea imagery, within Joan and with passages like Psalm 74, there's that additional symbol, that additional idea of, of this great sea creature that comes up and swallows Jonah. The language here just speaks of a great fish, but again, if you're in that culture, the, the imagery of Leviathan, the imagery of that great sea creature that's spoken of in a number of texts in the Old Testament would no doubt come to mind. In the book of Job, you see terrifying de depictions of that sea creature whose power is, is again beyond the comprehension of man. In a similar use of, uh, in a similar way that the authors use the sea and other books of Psalms, you see other authors use the Leviathan as a symbol of, of wickedness, a symbol of darkness, a symbol of destruction. And so again, for Jonah to be swallowed up by a sea creature would speak to destruction, it would speak to something that you cannot return from. And even beyond that sea creature, there is this final mention of three days and three nights, a passage of time that, that would defy any hopes of life. In every single detail given of, of Jonah's fall then, the assumption is Jonah is dead and it's the result of his own discipline, the result of the sin that he's committed against Yahweh. It is a chaotic and terrifying image. We oftentimes jump ahead in the story and, and remember that Jonah survives, but again to those originally observing the text, this is a, a violent and quick end that God is bringing upon his prophet. And even if the story were to end here, it would end here for good reason. For Jonah does, in fact, deserve this discipline, does he not? He's a prophet of God. He, of all people, should know how, how foolish it is to ignore the commands of God. He, of all people, knows how offensive it is to disregard a direct commandment of God and to try to escape. 
We as believers today understand Scripture is clear in teaching us that the result of sin is death always. And even if we do not experience something as dramatic as Jonah, of course, all of us have seen the destructive results of sin in our own lives. And we understand from other books of the Bible like Hebrews that that even as the children of God, we face discipline from God when we reject his rule. It will come inevitably. Just as Jonah was foolish in believing he could flee the presence of God, we too are equally foolish every time we break the commandments of God. For he sees everything, and there are consequences to everything. As we come to the end of verse 17, the end of chapter 1 then, and even into the opening verses of chapter 2, we come to the end of an image that would have spoken of great destruction, great discipline, great wrath to all of those who originally read it. And if you're unfamiliar with the rest of the story, it would be easy to assume that as of verse 17, Jonah has, it seems, gotten his wish. He wanted to, to get away from the presence of God, and it seems like wish granted. He's, he's now dead. He's now at the bottom of the ocean. Yet, as, as natural as that would have been, as much as that death would have been assumed, we of course understand this is not the end of the story. As chaotic as a tumultuous sea would have seemed, as, as horrific as a sea creature swallowing up the prophet would have been to the original readers, we understand shockingly that Jonah is still not yet out of the hand of God, that it actually turns out God's hand is still in control of Jonah, even in the midst of this discipline. For as we continue into verse 17, as he sinks to the bottom of the sea, we again read that very familiar account. In verse 17 we read, And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was in the stomach of the fish three days and three nights. This is, again, the part of the story that a lot of us love to discuss. This preservation of Jonah is the part of Jonah that many of us immediately shift our attention to. And if we're reading verse 17, that means that our attention frequently will shift immediately to this idea that Jonah is swallowed up by a fish and, and he's kept in the stomach of the fish for three days and three nights. Many people at this point in time would start debating over what sort of fish this must be. And there's a lot of fascinating discussions over what would be required when it comes to the size and, and how it would be possible that Jonah could survive something like this for such a, an extended period of time. And while there is good reason to be excited by those details, and while it can make for, for an interesting debate amongst commentators, the fact is that, that as bizarre or as shocking as it is that Jonah was swallowed up, as bizarre as that detail is, the, the far more challenging far more amazing comment in verse 17 is how it begins. For as we already just read, this fish doesn't just appear out of nowhere. It's not just a, a, a random event that Jonah swallowed up. No, as we're told in verse 17, that God appointed a fish to do this. That the same God that hurled the, great, the wind upon the uh, sea to cause the storm the same God that called Jonah in, in chapter 1, verse 1, he's the same God that apparently appointed this great fish. And as we examine those words, as we come into this, this longer, and this is really where we'll dwell for most of our time this morning, is as we speak to this idea of preservation, what we are forced to do, what we're forced to grapple with, 
is not just the idea of a fish swallowing a man, but it's the idea of a God who is so powerful that he rules over a fish. A God that is so powerful that he is seemingly sovereign over both man and animal, over both land and sea. And what you come to understand, not just in Jonah 1.17, but throughout the book of Jonah and throughout all of Scripture, is that as surprising as this detail is in Jonah 1.17, it is by no means unique. Throughout Scripture, we see this picture time and time again of God's total, unchallenged, impossible to defeat, sovereign hand that is always at work. And so as to better understand the book of Jonah and ultimately the God of the Bible, it's important to take that step back and and consider that sovereignty. Consider the extent of the sovereignty where God rules. Consider the end result of that sovereignty and ultimately consider the means that God is able to use. For in all these things we find humility and all these things we find an important lesson regarding who we are and who God is. With that in mind, then, we start by talking about the extent of God's sovereignty according to the book of Jonah and elsewhere. The extent of God's sovereign rule, that is, control over everything, is not something that is first mentioned in verse 17, for as we already quoted, look back to Jonah chapter 1, verse 4. There, weeks ago, we read these words, The Lord hurled a great wind on the sea, And there was a great storm on the sea, so the ship was about to break up. God, in his sovereignty, has has already demonstrated his power over wind. God, the sovereign creator of the universe, has the ability and the authority to cause a storm to kick up that is so powerful that it nearly breaks a boat apart, that causes seasoned sailors to feel hopeless. The text here, of course, does not make it look like God struggles to do this. This is an easy act on God's behalf. And it's easy because he's sovereign, he's in control. We come then to verse 17, and again, we read that that sovereign rule of God didn't end with wind. That sovereign will of God extends to these creatures of the depth. And so just as God is able to tell the wind where to go, God can appoint a great fish and tell it to swallow up a prophet. Tell it where in the sea it must be, tell it when and where it needs to do these things. And that great fish, like the great wind, has no ability but to obey. It does what its creator commands it to do. Shockingly, as you move forward throughout the rest of the book of Jonah, you see it's not just over some wind or some random sea creature. Skip ahead and look at Jonah chapter 4. In Jonah chapter 4, a a chapter we'll get to in the coming months, we read these words that again speak to the extent of God's sovereignty. Jonah 4 verses 6 through 8, we read, The Lord God appointed a plant... Same language, appointed a plant, and it grew up over Jonah to become a shade over his head to deliver him from his discomfort. Jonah was extremely happy about the plant, but God appointed a worm. When dawn came the next day and attacked the plant and it withered. When the sun came up, God appointed a scorching east wind and the sun beat down on Jonah's head so he became faint and begged with all his soul to die, saying death is better for me than life. Now, we'll examine that ridiculous attitude of Jonah in the coming months. But for the sake of our time this morning, the focus is is on that language of of divine appointment. The idea that that this same God who appointed a wind, the same God that appointed this great fish, is the same God who can appoint a, a plant to begin growing. He can appoint a worm to cause the plant to die. He can then appoint another wind to come in and and create discomfort with scorching heat. 
throughout this entire book, then what we see time and time again are the words of Jonah back in verse 9, in which he declares God to be the, the God of heaven and earth. We see those words lived out time and time again. Jonah was not exaggerating the power of his God. He knew God ruled over everything, and throughout the book of Jonah, we see that. And, and that's not even speaking to the sovereign will he has in, in the hearts of the Ninevites whom he converts. Oh, the God of Jonah is this God who, whose sovereignty extends beyond everything and everyone. It, of course, is not limited simply to the book of Jonah. This, this theme of God's sovereignty is something that plays a massive role throughout all of Scripture. And time and time again, when praising God, when speaking of his power, it is this sovereignty that authors point to as that which boggles the mind, that which is shared by God and God alone, that which makes him God and makes us his dependent creatures. His sovereignty throughout other books is seen to extend not over simply plant life and animal life, but it extends to the lives of mankind as well. Consider the words of Proverbs. In Proverbs chapter 16, verse 33, uh, 16, verse 33, we read, The lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord, meaning even those things that are seemingly coincidental. A lot being cast, those things are ultimately under the hand of God. In that same chapter, earlier in Proverbs, we read those familiar words of Proverbs 16, verse 9, which we read the mind of man plans his ways, but the Lord directs his steps. It's not just over random coincidental events, it's over the plans we make. Ultimately, the steps of us are in the sovereign hand of God. Everything we do is ultimately under his authority, ultimately under his reign. You read in many other texts and you see it is not simply limited to random individuals, that the sovereign hand extends over nations as well. Turning our attention over to the book of Daniel. In Daniel chapter 4, King Nebuchadnezzar, a man who was forced to see the sovereign hand at work. Speaking to that sovereignty, we read these words in verse 34 through 35. Nebuchadnezzar there says, His dominion, Yahweh's dominion, is an everlasting dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. But he does according to his will in the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And no one can ward off his hand or say to him, what is it you have done? This great political figure, this great ruler is forced to see he is nothing compared to Yahweh. He is forced to see his great empire will crumble at the, the slightest push of the mighty hand of God. You see the same realizations of a number of other political rulers throughout the Old Testament. Time and time again, what they are forced to see is the same thing that Jonah is forced to see, and that is God's sovereign hand extends over everything. One more passage that speaks to how tremendous this is is found in a sermon from the Apostle Paul in Acts chapter 17. There in that great message, we find these words of Paul speaking of God's sovereign hand and the extent of that sovereignty. And as I read these verses, just keep in mind the amount of details that, that must be under the control of God, verses 24 through 27 of Acts 17. Paul speaking again says, The God who made this world and all things in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, 
nor is he served by human hands as if he needed anything, since he himself gives to all people life and breath and to all things. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation so that they would seek God if perhaps they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. Again, consider the, the mind-boggling details of the extent of God's sovereign hand here. For it's not just over your individual plans. It's not just over some random plant in the city of Nineveh and Jonah. It's not just some over, uh, over some, some random wind that causes a storm to kick up on some random sea throughout the world. It's over every single empire, every single nation, every single political ruler, every single inhabitant of that political empire. God determines the boundaries of those empires. God determines the length of days that we live. God determines everything under his sovereign rule. It all falls within his sovereign reign. Many of us sing of these truths frequently when we attend church. We already sang multiple songs this morning in which we praised God for his power, but I think frequently we fail to appreciate just what it is we're, we're singing. We fail to appreciate just the extent of God's power as it's displayed, as it's declared throughout all scripture. We oftentimes in our pride feel as if somehow we are the masters of our own destiny, but it simply is not true. We are all servants. Regardless of, of what you believe about God, regardless of how obedient you might be to him, you are his subject. And he is your king. And if you fall outside of his reign then, or if you strive to push against that reign, you are doing something that is so incredibly illogical and so incredibly hopeless. For you fighting against the one whose power defies even the tumultuous sea itself. It defies that which mankind still cannot tame. When you consider these many words of scripture speaking to the extent of God's sovereign hand over life and death and human history, it is easy at first glance to feel a little hopeless and to tremble before him and Please hear me, it is right to tremble before him in initial reaction to that sovereignty. But again, pointing back to the, the words of Paul in Acts chapter 17, and pointing us not just to the extent of God's sovereignty, but also the ends of God's sovereign reign. We must understand that as, as scary as these details might seem, if you are a child of God, the sovereignty is a cause for us to all rejoice. For we read again in Acts chapter 17 at the end of that message that we already read that the end result, the end goal of the sovereignty isn't just to, to invoke terror in us. No, again, hear these words of Paul. God does all of this according to verse 27, uh, verse 27 of Acts 17 so that they would seek God if perhaps they might grope for him and find him. Paul speaks of this great authority of God, this this unmatched authority, this endless extent of his sovereign hand. And the end result isn't be terrified, people. The end result is praise him, serve him. He does this ultimately for your good. He does this ultimately for your benefit. If you are a child of God, the sovereign hand of God is that which ultimately guarantees your preservation. 
ultimately guarantees your good. This is why Paul is able to say, by the way, that God is able to work out everything to our good. It's because he can, he's in control of everything. Without this control, without this sovereignty, life would be miserable. Without this, without this sovereignty, without this power, Jonah would be dead at the bottom of the sea. But because of this authority, Jonah is alive in the stomach of a great fish. Because of this sovereignty, God chooses to save Jonah. And because of that sovereign goal then, God takes Jonah back to Nineveh and uses him to what? To bring life to the Ninevites. That which is seemingly chaotic and and horrifying in Jonah 1 leads not only to the preservation of Jonah, but the salvation of a countless number of people in Nineveh. That's not only the sovereignty of God at work, that is the work of of sovereign and good and gracious and loving ruler. And so as believers, as we consider that, that sovereignty of God, we rejoice not simply because of its extent, but because the ends guarantee our preservation, if not in this life, in the life to come. We rejoice because we know we serve a God that can and will deliver us into his heavenly kingdom, one way or another. Yet as glorious as those ends are, as amazing as it is to consider the verses we just read in Daniel and the many others you can read in Job and Isaiah and Acts and Romans that all speak to the extent and the ends of God's sovereignty, Perhaps the most mind-boggling concept in all of this. That which no doubt causes the most questions to be asked in Jonah is not just the extent or ends of God's sovereignty, but the means that God chooses to use. For God does not simply demonstrate his godness in the fact he rules. He demonstrates his godness by ruling in a way that none of us would ever predict. And to put our attention back to the book of Jonah, just consider the sort of story you would tell if you were in charge of of making up this story, for instance. If you were given the task to write a story about this prophet who's disobedient but is ultimately preserved by God and used to save the Ninevites, what sort of details might you come up with in your wildest imagination? How would you demonstrate God's power? How would you prove that he is good and in control of all these things even in the midst of a storm? My assumption is a lot of us might be able to get to the point of verse 15 and 16. We can imagine making up a story in which a prophet is disobedient, in which God can cause a storm to bust out at sea, and we can even imagine this the seemingly hopeless end of Jonah being thrown into the storm. But how would we imagine God saving Jonah? I thought of this frequently when studying this text because the, the image that would come to my mind would be something much more simplistic, would it not? We can imagine God sending a a random piece of wood in front of Jonah. Jonah clutches onto it, and and God causes another breeze, another wind to blow Jonah ashore. And and that would seemingly be enough to point to God's authority, right? Perhaps if this were some Christian movie, we would imagine some other random sea vessel that's that's at large that hadn't been seen up to that moment, but it turns out that ship is in the the right moment at the right time, and they they pull Jonah ashore and, and take him back towards Nineveh. We could come up with a number of explanations, a number of of means and ways that God could save Jonah, but certainly none of us could ever come up with verse 17. Who in his right mind would come up with the means of a great fish to swallow up a prophet? In our culture today, you will hear some unbelievers say things like, well, there's some of these details that are so 
so, so much of a fantasy that they could only have been believed by these foolish, uneducated people in the ancient cultures. They read stories like this and they somehow believe that in the ancient culture, it was seen as a normal thing to be swallowed up by a great fish. And that's ridiculous, right? We're not the smartest people who've ever lived. These people were educated. These people understood how the world worked. This would have been just as shocking and bizarre in the old world as it would be to us today. And yet this is the means that God uses. This is what God appoints. God uses a storm and a great fish. God uses things that would have been associated with nothing other than destruction, nothing other than death, nothing other than doom, and he uses those things to bring about life. That's odd, isn't it? And yet, as, as we hinted at earlier, this the story is by no means unique when it comes to the way that God works throughout Scripture. For if you read throughout Old Testament and, and the New Testament as well, you see time and time again God taking some of the most unlikely things and using those things to bring about life, to bring about purity, to bring about sustenance. You consider the, the choice he made in his people, the nation of Israel. What were they outside of God? They're nothing. They're not impressive. God makes that point abundantly clear in passages like Deuteronomy. In Deuteronomy chapter 7, God tells his people in verses 6 through 9, You are a holy people, Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his own possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. The Lord did not set his love on you nor choose you because you were more in number than any of the peoples. For you are fewest of the peoples. But... Because the Lord loved you and kept the oath which he swore to your forefathers, the Lord has brought you out of a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. Know therefore the Lord your God, he is God, the faithful God, who keeps his covenant and his loving kindness to a thousandth generation and to those who love him and he keeps commandments. God chose Israel, a weak people, to demonstrate his strength. Countless times throughout scripture, God chooses individuals who from the outside are pretty pathetic, pretty pathetic leaders. And he uses those sad, weak individuals to, to demonstrate his strength, to demonstrate his wisdom. You think, you think of the example of a Gideon in Judges. An individual who at the time of his choosing was hiding out from the Midianites who he was terrified of. And yet, in the midst of his terror, in the midst of his fear, the angel of the Lord appears and he says what? Greetings, mighty, mighty man of valor. He speaks of this great courage to Gideon, an image that, again, is no doubt somewhat surprising in light of the circumstances. Gideon wasn't a mighty man of valor. Isn't that impressive? But God chooses him. He does the same thing with David, the young individual son who even his father had overlooked. He does so with people. He does so with the nations he chooses. Throughout the stories of Israel, he chooses a number of other bizarre ways to bring about purification, to bring about sustenance. In 1 Kings 17, God preserves the life of his prophet Elijah, and how does he do it? By bringing a raven to feed him. A raven that was unclean according to Levitical law, that unclean animal is used to bring food to sustain the prophet. That's odd that he would do that. In Numbers chapter 21, in that famous account in which time the people of God were in the wilderness, struck down, and, and the way that God saves him is he, puts, he, he commands Moses to put a bronze serpent up on his staff. A serpent that would have been associated with uncleanliness. A serpent that would have been associated with pain and destruction. And God says, look at the serpent. Look at that which brings death. Look at that which is known as destruction. And by looking upon that, I'll save you. That's weird. 
That's bizarre. And yet again, we see it time and time again in Scripture, where God chooses these seemingly impure, unimpressive, weak things for the purpose of providing life, for the purpose of providing purity, purification. And in the case of Jonah, as God has him swallowed up by a fish and has him dwell in the fish's stomach for three days and three nights, the question that has to be asked is why? What a bizarre thing to do. And yet again, when we continue to read throughout all Scripture, when we continue to see the way this type of imagery is used throughout Scripture, we see this is no accident of God. God in a sovereign will knew exactly what he was doing by using a fish. God knew exactly what he was doing by using that which seemed chaotic. God even knew, surprise, surprise, exactly what he was doing by having Jonah stay in the, fish of that, uh, the, the stomach of that fish for just a random three days and three nights. And what is that reason? Well, the reason speaks to our third and final point. It's the sign of Jonah. It's the entire point of that language. Turn with me, if you will, to Matthew chapter 12. And you see the seemingly random detail of Jonah brought up by none other than Jesus Christ himself. Matthew chapter 12. Matthew chapter 12, Jesus is speaking and he's again confronted by those who are against him. Crowds that seek signs, crowds that seek a number of things. And having taught in parables, Jesus then offers these words in Matthew chapter 12, beginning in verse 36. Then he, Jesus, left the crowds and went into the house. His disciples came to him and said, explain to us the parable of the tares of the field. Again, parables and many things Jesus did were confusing. And he said, sorry, I might have the wrong, do I have it here? Yep, there we go. Sorry. Where are we? Matthew 12. I'm in it. Good. So, Matthew chapter 12, 38. Some of the scribes and Pharisees said to him, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. But he answered and said to them, An evil and adulterous generation craves for a sign, and yet no sign will be given to it but the sign of Jonah, the prophet. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will stand up with this generation at the judgment and will condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise up this generation and the judgment will condemn it because she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. Behold, something greater of Solomon is here. Here speaking to these enemies of Christ, those who rejected his rule, those who constantly sought a sign. Jesus says this, if you want a sign, just look to the book of Jonah. If you want a sign, just just watch what will happen. For just as Jonah was in the belly of the beast for three days and three nights, so I too will be in the earth three days and three nights. Jesus here says that the ultimate point of Jonah isn't just in the rescue of Jonah. It's to, to foreshadow this greater resurrection that was yet to come, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who again escaped that or endured that which 
which was death itself, not just symbolically, but literally. He endured that which was wicked, that which seemed to suggest that he was outside the hand of God, and yet throughout doing all of it, he demonstrated that he was himself God. He was the Son of God, who endured the cross, that which would cause someone to be impure, who suffered death, that which was a punishment for sin that he did not commit, who overcame death and the resurrection, thereby establishing his role as Lord, as Messiah. And speaking of Jonah, Jesus simply says, I'm greater than him. And the reason why he was in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights wasn't just to demonstrate how great God was in the life of the prophet, it's to demonstrate how much greater I am as the Son of Man, as the Son of God. And this random detail, so much like other random details of the Old Testament then, what we must ultimately see is the sovereign God who who appoints great fish to swallow prophets, the sovereign God who appoints great winds to blow and cause great storms to be blown up, who appoints worms and plants and people and political figures, is doing all of it for the purpose of unfolding his gospel narrative. As incredible as it is to consider here then, we understand that in Jonah, God has a much bigger story than he's telling, something far greater than the story of Jonah himself. For as great as the story of Jonah is, it is ultimately simply the story of of a sinful prophet who was forced into doing the will of God and going to the people of Nineveh. And as great as the ending of Jonah is with the conversion of so many Ninevites, it again is still fairly limited in its extent. But in the story of Jesus Christ, we of course have the prophet that is sinless, the perfect prophet. The one who does the will of God without any complaint, without any sign of disobedience. In the death of Christ, we do not have simply a death that is symbolic. We have a death that is literal. Christ does not simply dwell in the fish of a great beast in the sea. Christ dwells in the earth, in the, in the tomb. And the result of his resurrection isn't just the conversion of some city that has been long since destroyed by the time Jesus was resurrected. The result of his resurrection is the conversion of, of multitudes. It's life for thousands and thousands and hundreds of thousands of people. And the end result, again, as Jesus says, is the result that's the demand for obedience, for belief. Jesus says the people of Nineveh will rise up against those individuals in that day and will judge them, for the Ninevites were given a far lesser symbol and believed. How much greater is the symbol we've been given in Jesus Christ? How much greater is the demand and the expectation for that belief? You see, when we come back to Jonah chapter 1, and we read verses 15 through 17, as we consider all these things, then the end result, the conclusion, of course, is that this story that is so frequently limited to children's Sunday school is something that is far more magnificent than most even believers tend to recognize. It is a story that very quickly, very succinctly declares the sovereign hand of our God. It puts on display and reminds us that we do indeed serve the God of all dry land, of all sea. We serve a God who who is able to tell a fish to do his bidding and the fish obeys. In the story of Jonah, we are not simply reminded of his sovereignty, we are given a reminder of of the discipline that we face when we sin, and again, we're given motivation to serve him with all obedience, with joy, with hope. And in even the details of Jonah's time spent in the belly of this great fish, we as believers today are given 
that, that foretaste of what we read in Matthew of Christ's resurrection. As we consider all these details of discipline, of sovereignty, of the ultimate sign then, the application ultimately is the application of belief and obedience. For those of you who are here this morning who do not know Christ, the application is clear. And that is the sovereign hand of God is utterly terrifying. For you cannot escape it. You cannot escape your death. And that death will come by the hand of God. Far more scary, however, is that second death after the point you die, you will face the judgment from the almighty hand of your creator and ruler. And so my prayer for you this morning as you read these details of Jonah is that not, not that you just might marvel at the God of the Bible, but that you might marvel more at the God who, who also sent his son Jesus Christ, the God who controls all these things. My hope is that ultimately you might believe in Jesus Christ and understand that he is your only hope for resurrection, for eternal life. And so this morning as we continue our time together, I encourage you to consider that truth, consider that word of Christ to believe in him who not only lived a sinless life but escaped the grave and did so to present you eternal life if you simply believe. If you have any questions of that, please let us know afterwards. We'd be happy to speak. For those of us who are in Christ, let this familiar tale in the book of Jonah be a reminder of the God we serve. Let us be in awe of the God we serve. For he rules and his power is unchallengeable. His power cannot be matched. Let us learn to not simply fear that almighty hand of God, but let us learn to trust that God. For we recognize that his sovereign will is for our preservation, if not in this life and the life to come. And let us, unlike Jonah at this point in time, respond not in defiance to doing that which perhaps is distasteful at the time. Let us respond in obedience, remembering it is folly to try to run from God. But it is joy to serve him.